Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, AKA Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Today, our guest is Dr. Eleanor Hooks. She is the founder of the Smart Change Group, an executive coaching and consulting firm. She is the author of six books with her seventh book on the way this year in 2022. She has expertise in working with corporate executives, focusing on team development, designing training modules, and also assisting them in making transitions to various roles in corporate in the corporate world. Her brand includes innovation, creativity, promoting intercultural understanding and excellence. Eleanor Hooks, welcome to the show today. My goodness, I'm I'm really excited to be here, uh, Stephen. I and and I really support what you're doing because it's all about making a difference in the world and leading with possibilities. Oh, wonderful! With that the that positive intelligence notion. Uh, so uh, I'm really excited to be here and to have that, this conversation with you. Uh, that's wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Hey, look, I'm really curious. You've done a great deal in your life up to now, and you're still actively doing other things. I want to take you back to when you were, let's say, in high school and college. Did you have this type of vision for your life and for yourself back then? Well, actually, uh, as you well know, our life takes us along many different paths, but it's interesting how there's sort of a theme. Uh, today we call them memes, but you know, there's sort of a theme in your life story. So very early on, when I was uh, probably about eight or nine years old, I decided that I wanted to do something to help people, especially around. Uh, their um, mental condition, wow. their um, sense of you know uh, belonging in the world and that sort of thing. So the first thing that came to mind for me was I'll go work in prisons as a criminologist. Now this is at age nine. And of course my mother was horrified <laughs> that I would want to do that. She uh, really wanted me to go into a different field. But it's interesting because throughout my life, I have continued to look at um, opportunities to work with people who are stuck mm -hmm. in some way, who for some reason, whether it's a team in a, in a corporation or it's an individual, I'm always interested in this idea that there's so many possibilities yeah. for people. And for some reason they get stuck in some, some place. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got really curious about why was that? You know, what was going on there? What was happening and what could move them forward? So that's been kind of the theme for what I, what I do, even in my writing, that's yeah. pretty much a theme. Wow, that's, a, that's interesting. So let me probe this a little more uh, because you're telling me is that you had this, this intuition in a sense 
since you were just a child, where do you think this thing comes from, this intuitive sense of knowing? Well, I, I have the sense that we are sort of born with a certain um, innocence and a certain degree of compassion. And unfortunately for some of us, we get layered as we go through life with a different kind of theme or a different kind of sense of you know, what needs to happen in the world. And we, got, we get more individualized rather than having more of a sense of community. But I really believe that we're born really innocent wow. and joyful and, and you know, we have this inborn compassion mm. and that certainly DNA and our early life experience have some impact on what happens next. Yeah. But I do think, you know, and, and incidentally, when I encounter people who are having great difficulty, whether they're, you know, people who are on TV, on the news, or they're people I'm actually working with, I really try to see the innocence in them, mm. to look very deeply at what's going on for them. Yeah. Um, not in terms of what they're currently doing or not doing, but more in terms of what were they like when they were five? Wow. What were they like when they were two years old? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, then I, I get to imagine what the possibilities are there. Wow, that's fantastic. I love that. And I like that we expressed that, is that we come into this world, you know, as blank slates, and then you said we get layered. <laughs> I've never heard that before, layered. So in a sense then, our natural innocence and capacity gets covered up in a by society, yeah. Exactly. In fact, a really kind of a fun story. I was invited to Washington DC, this was many years ago, to meet a woman who was billed as a, a real guru for women you know, women's rights and, and needs, et cetera. And she was from India. So she came and I, for some reason, I can't remember her name, but I do remember that I was invited by, you know, a, a teacher at the Gestalt Institute who, whom I really admired. So I was, she said, come. And I said, okay, I'm there. So I went to hear this woman. She had some really great pearls of wisdom about women and what women need to do as a community. Uh, but this one story she told, or actually it was kind of a metaphor that she used, was about the fact that women go through life, and I would say everyone mm. goes through life. Mm. And every time they meet someone, there's a little bit of that person that gets plastered onto them. Wow. And that if they, whether they meet someone who really, um, you know, serves their interests or not, mm -hmm. someone who really appreciates and respects them or not, all of that gets sort of layered, literally, mm -hmm. on top of them. And then one day they look in the, into the mirror and they don't recognize themselves. Wow. 
And that stayed with me for years. Mm. The idea that this interaction with people mm. has some, it has some benefits, obviously. We want to engage with people. Mm. But then the downside of that is what do we take on and allow to be layered onto us. Right, understood. I get you, I love that. I mean, use that phrase layered. But look, I wanna, I wanna probe this just a little bit more because in, in hearing you, and tell, correct me if this is not what you're, where you're going with this, but it seems as if when a person is born into the world, you know, there's something else here beyond the person's, let's call it skin line. Yes. I don't know what to call it, maybe the soul or spirit. I don't know what to call it. But is that, is that presence always with us in the background? Yes. Yes. And it's, you know, we talk about that um, essence. Mm. Uh, Howard Thurman, someone I, I really admire, talked about centering down mm. and getting in touch with that internal spirit mm. that, that sits there. Wow. People have different ideas about what that is. No one can really define it very, very well. Mm. It's, it's almost, and this is a real departure. I, I'm kind of nerdy when it comes to, um, you know, quantum physics and, and quarks and stuff like that. And one of, the, one of the things we know about quarks, which is that, you know, very tiny element, mm. is that we don't really know that they exist except when they've already moved to another spot. So it's almost like I only know something on the basis of what it has already done or where it has already been. Yeah. So where I'm going with that is that in terms of that internal spirit, mm -hmm. we only know by the effects of it. Mm -hmm. So things will happen in my life you know let's let's kind of boil it down to something very simple uh if you know you think about somebody someone you haven't thought about for a long time and then the phone rings mm -hmm. now we call that you know kind of we have we call it serendipity or co coincidence or something like that but to me it is evidence that something is moving in the universe. Yeah. We don't know what it is. Yeah. And we're participating. We're not just bystanders. Mm. We are participating in that. Yeah. So that's exciting because it says, not only is there this essence that's inside of me, I can center down and really get connected with that, but there's all that's outside of me that I have access to as well. Yeah. That's really powerful. That's powerful indeed. And that, that's encouraging because I'm, I'm, I'm gathering from you is that because of this presence that's always here, that we can be guided and inspired. So I want to ask you, looking at your professional career, you know, the colleges you've gone through, gone to the professional programs, the certificate programs, do you feel that your life has been guided in making those choices? of you know, graduate school, for example. Can you tell us about that and whether you felt that you have been, were guided when you make those choices? Yes, uh, in terms of uh, graduate school specifically, uh, I, and, and, and I'll start with my uh, doctorate degree uh, and kind of work backwards, but with that, 
it was this gnawing kind of sense that I needed to know more. I needed to understand more. I needed to be involved more in the idea of um, intercultural communication. Because at that point, I was seeing, I was actually working in a public school system, and um, the population was quite diverse. And I didn't really have a sense that there was a real understanding of all the really the differences that were showing up. And that many people were being invited to assimilate rather than acculturate or to bring their own perspective, you know? And I didn't know, I didn't think that the people I managed or supervised who were counselors were really positioned to do anything about that, you know, in terms of their knowledge base. So that really catapulted me into a doctoral program. It's like, I've got to study this. I've got to figure out what this is and what some practical um, applications might be of this. Um, so that's what really kind of drove me into that. That's always, that's been kind of a theme for me because in counseling, I had a very uh, negative experience of counseling in high school. Mm. And I went to a college prep high school, kind of, you know, a gem in mm. Philadelphia. And yet I encountered someone who discriminated against me. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, it was very clear, the discrimination. Um, and so I decided that I needed to go into a profession where I could protect people from that, mm -hmm. that I could be a different kind of counselor, mm -hmm. right? So that sort of drove me into that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always been this sense that you know, people have, either people have need, needs, but they also have possibilities yeah. and, and opportunities. And how can they take what is, you know, everything from trauma to, you know, a slight of some sort, or, you know, I, I mean, being discount, I mean, we could go on with the whole list, whatever it is, there's always an opportunity for them to do something because they're there because of you know what we just discussed in terms of the broad possibilities in this whole universe. Yeah. So uh, the so the key is how do we discover that? Right. And it's not out there, it's in here. Yeah. So that's a starting place. Yeah. And then all that's out there that we were just talking about comes to our aid. I believe the universe is for us, mm. not against us. Okay. Okay, so looking at this, and you've, you've studied this as an academic and a writer and thinker, how are we doing as a, as a world culture? I wanna put it that way, as a one world culture, how are we doing in terms of intercultural understanding? I think that we're growing. We're growing and we're expanding and we're evolving. And if you think about growth, growth is, it's not necessarily comfortable all the time. You know, if we think about even like a basic plant, you know, we put some seeds in the ground 
it has to push through and it's kind of messy at first and you know you know we we nerd we you know um we put fertilizer down and you know all kinds of growth kinds of things we throw that in and i think a lot of that is happening around the world a lot is being put into the soil yeah. but the growth process is not it it is it is continual but it is not necessarily neat and neatly packaged. So what happens is there's a lot of pushing through mm. and it's messy. Mm. And mm. what happens is that ultimately we'll see the fruits of it. Mm. But like any other growth, I mean, uh, something will come along and knock it down. And then that process starts all over again. Mm. So we're in this, we're in, from my perspective, we're in a cycle where there's a lot of growth. And when you have a lot of growth, there's a lot of energy. And some of that energy is fighting against other energy. Okay. Uh, especially in terms of we as people, energy just is, but we're using our energy in different ways. Yeah. And as a result, uh, we are looking at this and thinking, oh my goodness, this is a mess. But I absolutely believe that the universe is perfectly unfolded. Wow. Perfectly. Yeah, I like the way you put that um, because it's what it says is that we are in, let's say continuous, expansion expanding there's going to be a little bit of mess along the way so that's i like that but you mentioned the word trauma i've got to ask you this i don't make it out of focal but um so we know trauma is in the world for sure but i want to ask you another question about it can people heal from their traumas in the plural sense (laughs) can do you feel that people can actually heal from that stuff i think it's possible but i think um you know, we humans like to rush things. Mm. So it's, if, if there's trauma, let's just sit down, work this out, come up with a plan, you know, and then we'll have it all done. That's not, you know, trauma is very deep. And there are lots of, you know, it's almost like there are lots of different players in this, in trauma. Uh, so, and, and so often, uh, if you think about uh, traumatic experiences that, let's say, children, young children experience, um, and we could pick from a whole long list, uh, whether it's, you know, sexual assault or battery, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things. But the idea that that child who has been living with this for a while should suddenly just be able to work it out, <laughs> okay? That's unreasonable because it's been sitting there for a while. Mm-hmm. And as the child grows and gets, you know, becomes an adult, mm-hmm. that is sitting, it's almost like having old cheese in the refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to, 
yeah, I hate to use such a mundane example, <laughs> but it's old cheese. It's mm. moldy. It's old. It's smelly. It's awful. Mm. And it's sitting there, but it's in the corner of the refrigerator. Mm. And, you know, it has affected that whole corner. And in fact, when we open the refrigerator door, it has affected the whole refrigerator. We need to have, in that case, the patience to meticulously clean out all of that energy. All, and, and it really is energy. Yeah. And that takes time. So that's one of that's one of the things that can be kind of heavy on us right now because we think, oh my goodness, um, there are so many people who are traumatized by mm -hmm. war, by you know, famine, by floods, by you know, earthquakes. I mean, you, you know, so the broad kind of trauma and then the individual type of trauma, the family trauma, the community trauma, um, the identity community. Trauma. I mean, we, there are lots of different types. And so, yes, there is hope for trauma, mm -hmm. but we have to give it time. Sure. We really do. And I think everybody is really kind of, you know, let's get it done. Let's clean this up. Let's get rid of it. You mm -hmm. know, it's not good. Yeah. But me, easier said than done. Yeah. That, that made me think about, you know, just the life experience of a human being. Mm -hmm. It seems that we can go from feeling safe, we we're safe, you know, all is well, mm -hmm. then we can get to a point of feeling unsafe. So is that what trauma is like? Is it like a balance between, okay, I'm safe, or something happens, oh, I'm not safe now, and then the opportunity is to try to go back to safety. Is that a part of the dynamics of healing from something that's traumatic? I think I'm going to kind of jump ahead of that particular idea of safety, well, yeah, I'll, I'll stay, I'll stay there first and then I'll, I'll leave. Um, we have, um, as part of our brain, this sense that um, we have to respond when we're under attack, mm -hmm. right? I think the issue is that for some people, sometimes because of trauma, and sometimes because of a whole host of other life events, uh, people believe that they need to be vigilant at all times. And it really, it wears down a person. We look at some of the violence against African-Americans, you know, mm -hmm. um, we can either look at that as, oh my gosh, I have to be ready at all times. And to a certain degree, you do, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. At a certain level, you do have to, to um, be ready. So that reptilian brain that we talked about, that the, the part of the brain that is kind of on, on alert in case you are, uh, in case there's danger, um, Sometimes we begin to use that more than is necessary. Mm. And we don't use the part of the brain um, in concert with this, incidentally. They aren't just like separate entities, they work together. 
the other part of the brain that is is a lot more let's call it logical mm. where it's really assessing everything that's going on mm. now if you've ever gone through any kind of assessment it takes a while yeah. right and so that's what happens with that part of the brain the prefrontal cortex it starts processing but it's a little slower than this part of the brain that's designed to protect us in the event of imminent danger, yeah. right? So what we want to do is have both parts of these, this, this brain, the whole brain kind of working together so that we can make wise decisions about what's going on for us. Mm. Okay. But I think what happens is that um, you know, we, when we have systemic issues that are happening, uh, are the part of the brain that is more, uh, that, uh, frightened, fearful, on alert, uh, portion is going to be activated so much more. So if you're living in a community, that is continually under attack, it makes sense to protect yourself, mm. you know, to be on high alert. Mm. If you're in a community, and I'm talking about even living in a community where that is not the case, then obviously you're gonna be a whole lot calmer. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it, it's really logical. <laughs> You know, it is, it is the way things are going to be. And to expect that people in communities that are under attack, literally under attack, um, and I don't mean attack only by, you know, law enforcement, that sort of thing. I'm talking about attack, an attack based on food insecurity mm -hmm. or um, housing issues. Uh, I mean, just broadly speaking, poverty, yeah. um, all of those, that's an attack on people. All of those are attacks on people. Mm -hmm. I, I said to someone with regard to poverty, I said to someone the other day that the main issue with poor people, that group that we call poor people, is that they have no money. Mm -hmm. It is not that there's some other, you know, nefarious kind of explanation for why they are poor. They are poor because they have no money. People are without a home. We call them homeless, but they are without a home. That's what makes them homeless. You put them in a home and they're no longer home. You know, it's just, it's, and I don't, mean to just reduce this to something that is just a rational, logical kind of piece. But I think it helps us to go to the smallest element of something mm. to understand what's really going on. And then we begin to look at all of the different ways that this very elementary problem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has mushroomed into something that is very, very complicated. Right. I understand that. Yeah. Okay, I want to stay with this kind of theme to, to glean more about what you've learned. So what have you learned from life and from your professional career 
about healing and resilience? I think um, resilience is not necessarily being totally optimistic all the time, but having hope that the future is going to be different from the present. And therefore being open and allowing for opportunities to arise. So it's not, it, you know, so often we talk about, oh, you've just got to work hard, work hard, work hard. There are many people who are working very, very hard. Okay. Uh, and, and yet they feel as if they're just, you know, they're on a treadmill, just walking in place. You know, they're not really, nothing new is happening for them. And resilience for me is looking at a situation that may be a horrible situation and seeing the opportunity in that. Yeah. Seeing that there's something that's beneficial about it. And yeah. sometimes that's difficult. That yeah. is really difficult. So I have to, in, in, in order to talk about resilience, I also have to go back to this whole universal idea of how everything kind of fits together how it's, if you believe that everything is perfectly unfolding then you really have hope and with that hope you can put plans into place you can try new things mm -hmm. you can say i'm not going to allow this event or this um condition to really be kind of the signature for my life, mm. you know, I'm going to move forward. Mm -hmm. And that's an element of resilience. It's, it's being able to literally bounce back. Mm. Okay. And uh, so resilience, yes, but I believe that that's possible for anyone if yeah. they know how it, well, let's just say it's not only an individual experience, resilience, mm -hmm. I think it requires support, support from other people. Mm -hmm. I think part of the, the um, I would say the real, the world concerns mm -hmm. is that people look like they're in communities, but they aren't necessarily mm -hmm. in healthy communities. Mm -hmm. They're in groups. Mm -hmm. um, they may be in cultural groups or religious groups. But if you look into the internal workings of the groups, mm -hmm. they there isn't the sense of Ubuntu, which is an yeah. African expression of community. There isn't that real spirit of community. Mm -hmm. And it's possible. It's yeah. not that, you know, this is an odd idea. Yeah. We have all kinds of patterns for it, mm -hmm. models for it. Yeah. And I think when people are in a community, they have a certain degree of support and that is a boost to their resilience. Mm. Resilience is internal, mm. but the community supports that and keeps it going, you know, yeah. sustains it. Yeah, I get that. That's great. I, I love the phrase bounce back. I felt it when you said it, you know, yeah. bounce back. We have that capacity. Let's continue on with this theme. Um, in terms of what you've learned, you know, as a, as a thinker, a practitioner, 
about compassion and forgiveness. What have you learned? What has life taught you about those ideas? Oh, compassion is a beautiful thing, first of all. Compassion, but compassion starts, if you really want a firm footing on compassion, uh, it starts with the individual. It starts with the self. And, uh, you know, whether you're using, you know, like uh, the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. or, or uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or Buddhist principles, it's all about how do you relate to other people? How, how do you see yourself in other people? How do you treat other people? with respect, with love, with um, kindness, mm -hmm. with generosity. Uh, in Buddhist principles, I love the way it sort of reduces everything to you know, just lists and patterns and that sort of thing. And there, there, they, there's, there, one of the teachings is around what they call the three poisons. Mm. Three poisons are hatred, and we see that all the time. Uh, and the, the next one is greed. And the third poison is delusion. Mm -hmm. so we, when we see all of those operating, that causes a lot of turmoil and a lot of, of hurt in the world. And so one of the things when I think about compassion is that instead of hatred, the obvious is love, mm. uh, loving kindness. Uh, with greed, the obvious antidote, what I'm, talking, what I'm talking about is the antidote. The antidote to greed is generosity. Mm. How can you be more generous? Mm. And the delusion is the one that's real for me, from mm. my perspective, is really tough. Mm. Because the idea is that people need to understand that everything changes. Mm. Everything changes. Mm. So when I dig in for something, I, you know, if I dig in for a moment, it's it has changed. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I'm, I'm holding on, I'm attached to something that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. Uh, it that's, a, that's so much of what happens in terms of culture. Culture is a, in part, it's very supportive. It does create communities, all of that good stuff, but it also just digs in. <laughs> mm. And so the world changes. And you know when I when I talk about culture, it's not just race as a culture. I mean, any group of people who come together around some kind of central ideas, that to me is based the basis for a culture. Mm -hmm. Now, culture takes on a lot of different textures, but a culture digs in, and the world keeps moving. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so all, you know, so then 
because there's this great attachment to the belief or the movement or the group or the community, then there's difficulty when you see something else happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this turning away. It's like, no, I don't want that. And the minute you do that, you create resistance. Mm -hmm. So then you have all of, you know, then it gets complicated. Mm -hmm. Remember I said, you know, just growth, you know, it's just going to happen. It's pushing through, et cetera. But then it gets complicated with all these layers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So delusion is removing mm. this idea that things are permanent. Mm. We're not permanent. The world is not permanent. Mm. Anything that we see, it may look solid to us. But it's not. When I say it looks solid, in the sense that have you ever, you know, gotten a fav, you know, a chair, just a simple chair, really comfortable chair, and over the years, the arms wear a little bit, mm -hmm. or it gets it's not as firm as it used to be. Mm -hmm. The pillows are a little smashed in, or something like that, you know. And then you look at the chair, and you remember when you first got the chair none of these things were issues. But because you were comfortable in the chair, you didn't notice. <laughs> Until one day you say, oh, I need a new chair, <laughs> right? So that's what happens when people get stuck. It's a comfortable chair. It's a comfortable place to be. And we don't notice that it's changing. Wow. That's interesting. So, um, you know, you, you've talked about and no doubt written about uh, present awareness. I hope I got that right. And just for a minute, and I want you to talk about, it, about that with us. And let me contextualize it by saying, it seems to me that you've joined people like Eckhart Tolle, Michael Singer, and some of the other popular writers, you know, who talk about the present moment, now, that kind of thing. So can you tell us about what you're trying to do when you share or write about present awareness and how you may even link, connect with some of these other, other teachers? Well, um, for me, it's kind of basic, uh, the, the um, present awareness focus, because from my perspective, the present is the only thing that's really real. You know, I, I just mentioned the idea of um, we think a chair is solid, like it's not going to change. The present moment is really all that we have. It's all that we have. The future, we have no idea what the future is going to look like. I mean, we can make, you know, very elaborate plans. Those plans will change. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to the past, um, you know, sometimes they say the past really doesn't exist. Our emotions about the past exist. Sometimes we see evidence, um, you know, whether it's our body, like our eyes, you know, our, you know, our body in some way, our hearing, our you know, speech, I mean, all kinds of things. We notice these changes, right? And that's what's happening for us right now. Mm -hmm. But 
if we go back to the past, it, none of that is really available to us. It's gone. And so often the past really doesn't have any more to tell us, you know, even if we go back looking. Um, there's not a lot there that we can really pick up and use. Mm -hmm. um, so what is most accessible to us and valuable to us is what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. And the, the magic of right now is that even as I say it, a new now <laughs> is available, right? right? So it's the idea of just, uh, you know, this whole idea of just being tapped into the flow. Mm. Um, and that when you are tapped in, when you're tuned in to the flow that is existing in the present moment, mm. then you're prepared for the next moment. Mm. Uh, I think the other piece around the present moment is that, um, in the present moment is really where the wealth, where the abundance, where the, um, the possibilities are. Mm. And I think the real value is to simply sit still, wow. to just be still because we miss moments yeah. if you're busy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love uh, Tagore's uh, quote, uh, so something like uh, nature does not harry, and yet everything is accomplished. Mm. So you look at a tree, you know, it's just steadily doing what it's doing. It's mm. being a tree. Mm. And that's also part of the present moment mm. to just be who you are. Mm. And who, I, from my perspective, we're love incarnate. That's really what we are. Okay. We're love in a body. Mm. And if we are that, yeah. and if we sit, just sit still for a moment mm. and really get present with that, mm. it prepares us for all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. That's a, whew, that's a lot. And I'm just thinking about, about someone who may, may be listening to this podcast or watching it on one of the platforms that where it will be. And I can hear them asking, wait a minute, well, how do you disconnect from those stories that keep coming up from this past that doesn't exist? So can you talk with us a little bit about that? Well, um, I, I like the term story hmm. because let's say we're watching, let me give you an example, we're watching TV. We're watching, um, let's say even a medical show, okay? And my favorites, I love medical shows, but anyway, you're watching the medical show and at the end of this week's episode, let's say it's something that comes on every week. And at the end of the episode, um, are parts of that episode real to you or are they stories? You know, and so, and I pray, I. I put it that way because, yeah, they're dealing with some things very often that are real in terms of their representations mm. of what happens for people in medical, in, in emergency rooms, usually. Um, but is 
is that a story? Of course it's a story. Somebody wrote it. <laughs> they use the expertise of medical consultants, you know, to get some accuracy there in terms of treatments, et cetera, and terminology, but it's a story. But we're very engaged in this story. You know, we get really excited. Oh yeah, you know, my favorite show is on. Let me sit down and settle in, you know. Uh, it's a story. There's no reason, but but here's here's the real, you know, kind of edge in all of this is that the story generates certain emotions. So either we're excited or we're wondering how they're going to figure out how to heal this person, you know, how to, you know, um, come up with the, the best treatment for this person. Uh, and I'm here, I'm still in the medical show. Or we get, you know, we wonder if this particular doctor is going to stick to protocol or is he going to veer off into something more, you know, creative or whatever. Um, so we're looking, we're, we're excited, we're engaged, et cetera. But we have all these emotions that are coming up. You know, fear, anxiety, hopefulness. I mean, all kinds of stuff going on. Well, the same is true with our life stories that exist in the past. We have emotions. So what we remember about those events in the past is really at an emotional level. The facts get blurrier and blurrier as time goes on. Certain things really kind of get triggered sometimes because they're kind of sitting there we haven't worked through that. Perhaps we were too young to even know what it was. And so it sits there, it's very unclear. We don't know what it is. And so it gets triggered. Or maybe there was a lot of pain that gets triggered. So what we're remembering is the pain. And it gets triggered because we're, we're facing a new pain. And we need to figure out how those are connected. All of this is going on in our mind. Mm -hmm. All of this is going on in our mind and in our heart. Yeah. So that's the deal in terms of um, the present moment, staying in the present moment is here's, here is the beautiful uh, nature of sitting still. Uh, whether it's a meditation or prayer, contemplative prayer, whatever you want to do. Sometimes it's just sitting still is that and, and breathing and paying attention to your breathing is a way for you to get grounded in your body. Because the body is like a sense laboratory. <laughs> you know? And so you get grounded in your body when you breathe you really pay attention to how you're actually feeling and you begin to understand uh, what, how you, can, how you can be at peace, how mm. you can find calm, even in the midst of a lot of turmoil mm. and even in the midst of a lot of negative thoughts, mm. all of that's possible. Wow, okay. So like, I want to look at your business a little longer for just a few more, if you have more time, just yeah, a yeah. questions about, about your business. Um, as I was looking over the Smart Change Group, 
Um, I saw something that I would equate to a brand promise. Now, maybe that's not your intention, but it seems to me if you were to articulate it, it would be that your brand promise includes something like smart change, right change, right time, something like that. How did you come up with that type of promise, you know, for potential clients? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, um, especially working with corporate clients, mm -hmm. uh, but actually it has kind of spread to just about everything I do. And that is, there's a certain timing for everything. Uh, even my, you know, you probably saw my website do a thing at its time mm -hmm. and peace follows it. And I think there is a, very often in, in corporations a rush to do something yeah. uh, without really understanding the timing. And it's not just time itself. It is the idea that if you want to move a, a team forward in terms of a new initiative, you really want most of the people, if not all of the people, to buy into it. Mm -hmm. buy into the change. Mm -hmm. But people adopt or adapt to a change at different speeds. Yeah. So you and let me give you an example and not even a change initiative, but um, it's probably not a good idea to initiate um, a, a major uh, recruitment of new people into an organization when you're laying off people. Hmm. Okay. It sounds like who would do that? Yeah. But there really are companies who do that. Hmm. They are bringing in people and they're pushing people out. And it's, and you think this is probably not the right time. Yeah. <laughs> Or, I mean, and all sorts of things can happen in organizations mm -hmm. and leaders don't necessarily consider the timing of it. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that we want to make the right change. Mm -hmm. Right change that involves a whole series of different ideas at the right time. When you put those two together, then you probably will have a successful initiative moving forward. Yeah. Well, that's, that's so important, not only for corporations, but for people. So let me ask you. Absolutely, absolutely. You said people move yeah. and corporate, corporate leaders move at different speeds. So how do you manage it when people are at different speeds and you know they want to slow down, they can't slow, how do you, how do you manage that? I think and this is where coaching comes in for uh, me. Okay. Uh, and my background in Gestalt work um, is just so helpful because one of the things I used to um, enjoy even through the training in Gestalt was the idea of um, pointing out contradictory kinds of events. Um, someone who, let's see if I can find an example, uh, like someone who thinks that um, every, everyone should be given a voice on a team, you know, like we really want everybody to be engaged, but the leader of the team does all the talking. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute. That's really, you know, that doesn't really work. So in, in terms of leaders and managers, um, really understanding that everybody needs to be involved in order for the outcomes to be what you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to point out in their history, this is probably the only way that the only um, time that the past really works. Let's look at what happened last year when you tried to initiate some, something and it didn't work out. Okay, so what happened? What, where, did you, where did you slip? Another, an African proverb says, don't look at where you fell, look at where you slipped. Mm-hmm. That's good. I like it. So you slipped at some point. What happened? Uh, you know, in project management, it's so important um, not only to define the problem, but to be clear about the process. Mm-hmm. You know, does the process really answer the defined problem, or mm-hmm. does it go off on some other tangent or get so buried in details that it doesn't? really address the issue or have you, you know, so often in project management, um, when I've spoken with uh, people who are involved in in a project, um, they are concerned that not everybody is really pulling their their load. They're not, you know, accountable or they lose interest in it because it gets so detailed. There's so much that has to be done that by the time people wade through it, you know, (laughs) they want to do something else. It's like, can we do this in a different way? So, I mean, those are just a couple of examples that I've encountered. But my point is that um, pointing out contrast, pointing out, um, you know, what they've learned or perhaps not learned as well from past behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, and the most powerful is pointing out the contrast and the behaviors in the present. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what's happening right now? You know, what are you doing right now? You're doing all the talking, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you want other people to, you know, brainstorm or give their perspectives, but yeah. they have no airtime. Yeah. Wow. Got it. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Hey, look, before we part, I got to ask you about your books. Um, you've, okay. time. Look, you've written six books already, uh-huh. and you're writing your seventh book this year, completing your seventh book. Uh-huh. First, what do you try to convey in your book? What was your favorite book, book project? And what are you currently trying to convey in your writing today? Oh, well, um, as I mentioned, this the theme is around um, helping people to see possibilities, to mm-hmm. see opportunities, um, particularly opportunities in the present moment, which is for me where it all starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, my favorite book thus far, uh, believe it or not, is Af- African Zen. Oh. I, I love African Zen because. First of all, it introduces the idea 
of African proverbs being um, kind of an impetus for wisdom mm -hmm. and for uh, spiritual wisdom in particular. And so I like the, you know, sort of the, the underlying intention around that. And so that's part of the reason I like that. Mm -hmm. With Daily Sip, that was Daily Sip of Joy and Peace. Um, that's an, that, that was a mammoth undertaking. <laughs> it's just a, a really big book. I think that in that book, uh, again, I really pressed this idea of being in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And also the idea of my nine principles for a joyful life which are very important um, around our relationship with spirit and you know, being kind to ourselves and others and, and so on. Uh, and with you know, other books, my poetry book, my other book with, I, in many cases, I wanted to be brief. Mm. Um, so my early books were you know, kind of pithy and witty expressions and those kinds of things. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, powerful quotes for people to guide people. Mm -hmm. um, then with my poetry book, I wanted to um, deal with the whole idea of attachments, clinging, clinging to certain aspects of our lives, uh, exploring what it means to live in the presence. The presence is another word that I use for, you know, God, the universe, spirit, and including a poem about doubt. Mm. Uh, so I explored the whole landscape of living. You know, they, they were reflections that I had on, on living in the presence. But um, my latest book has to do with uh, my recent bout with cancer. Mm. And I'll tell you, um, in all of this, uh, I began in all my writing, at some level, I was dealing with the idea of suffering. Mm -hmm. What is suffering all about? I sort of, you know, kind of poked at it here and there. Uh, and, you know, my remedy was, you know, stay and stay in the present. And then I was diagnosed with cancer and I thought gee this is probably the best opportunity that I've ever had to really know what what suffering is then mm -hmm. and, and it, it goes back to my gestalt ex experience which is all about experience it's a very mm -hmm. an experiential piece and uh so having cancer for me, from the very beginning, uh, even you know, early on with treatment, et cetera, I was uh, basically putting into practice this idea of being still. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. Yeah, I won't go into anything graphic, but I do describe this in my upcoming book. The idea that when you have radiation, uh, especially since I had throat cancer, um, when you have radiation and they actually, um, the radi radiology technicians actually create a mask that they put over your face um, 
And in order to do that, they take this material, I have no idea, I think it's some kind of you know, plastic or whatever material, but it's wet. They put it on your face and mold it to your face. And then they have this flange that, you know, goes a little beyond your face and down on your chest. And it has holes in it. So it looks like a net. And so you lie there uh, the first time they do it because it has to harden. And then you come back for your first treatment and they bolt you down to the table Ooh. with this mask on you. Mm. And you have to lie there for usually about 15, maybe 20 minutes while they're shooting their, you know, the radiation into you. Mm. Now, there are many people, I'm certain, who would freak out yeah. at having, you know, to be bolted down flat on a, on a table, unable to move mm. at all. Uh, for me, the first thing that came up was great compassion for the people who are claustrophobic, mm. who um, are frightened beyond belief mm. at what is happening, realizing that these you know, very powerful rays are being shot into their body, okay? Mm. So that's the, the compassion piece. And then when the, the first treatment, I went into deep meditation. Wow. Mm. So while I'm lying on the table, and you can still breathe, you know. So I was breathing, breathing deeply. I got very, very still. Mm. And of course, you know, I couldn't move. So I really kind of saw that as an opportunity to be still, to be present, to, um, to feel whole, um, to rally, really go to center down, going back to Howard, to really center down and get into this really calm place. Mm. And then coming out of that, when they unbolted me and the whole thing, I realized that the, there are people working in these facilities. And mm. keep in mind, this was at, was at the height of the COVID pandemic the early part that mm. this was happening. <clears throat> and I realized that these people are, you know, moving into these areas where, you know, the virus is raging. Mm. Uh, you know, they don't know what people are coming in to the facility with, you know, I mean, we tried to, to uh, manage that, but, you know, so that was an issue. Um, but then also just the work that they're doing, mm. they realize what they're doing to your body, right? right? So I made it my business. I mean, I every single day, I thank them. Wow. I th thank, thank you so much. I, you know, thank you became almost a mantra for me during the whole experience. Mm. Um, and the thank you was not only Thank you for helping me to get through this and possibly heal, mm. but also thank you for what you know what you're what you're having to experience as well, mm. and you're willing to do it on my on behalf. 
And then, you know, of course I, you know, as I'm leaving, have a great day. And, you know, because I, I wanted them to know, I recognize that their day is not necessarily the most pleasant. Wow. So it, it, the key is, you know, it, it's compassion and love and kindness and all of those great things are not just words. They're wow. not just theories. Yeah. You really can put it into practice. Wow. Well, just listening to you, uh, Eleanor, is a meditation. <laughs> that experience. Yeah. Well, look, well, look, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. This really was, uh, was, was a very good, uh, enjoyable for me. So. Oh, well, it was enjoyable for me, too. I love the Q&A approach. I really do. That's really my favorite. That's great. So, uh, it was pleasant. It was also great to connect with you again. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Okay. Well, you have been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today is Eleanor Hooks. And uh, you know, you'll, you'll find this on several podcast platforms. Oh, Eleanor, before you leave, let me ask you one last question. Would you mind sending me a, a titles of your books and so that I can put it in the description where yes. I post yes. this podcast? Yes, I will. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you again. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Yeah.